great. Uh, everyone, it's so, so good to be here. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Zechariah, chapter 2. Zechariah is in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets, so after Isaiah and Jeremiah and um, the other major prophets, um, you hit books like Zechariah. And um, uh, just as you're, as you're turning there, I'll pray for us, and then um, we'll get into God's Word. God, we want to thank you for... Uh, the fun we've had so far this morning. Thank you for the sense of family. Thank you for babies being dedicated and new life coming through. Thank you for um, speaking to us as you promised through dreams, through um, prophetic messages. And uh, God, we thank you that um, you've also committed to speaking to us through your word. And uh, we pray that you would help me as I speak, help all of us as we listen to be challenged by your word. God, I pray for um, those of us who might not even call ourselves Christians this morning. I pray that you would speak to us, speak to all of us about how you love us this morning. And God, for all of us again, as we learn about how you love us, God, we pray that you would help, help us to come to love what you love. And we ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said... Great. Zechariah 2 verse 1 says this, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, Where are you going? He answered me, Well, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and then another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run! Tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. I'm speaking this morning on loving the church, but uh, even before we get uh, into this passage of Scripture, uh, I bring greetings to you from One Tribe Church in Nairobi. One Tribe was planted. We had our launch Sunday uh, two and a half years ago, and um, One Tribe was, was planted by the Advanced Movement, the family of churches that Monument is a part of now, One Tribe is a part of, and um, it's been great experiencing God's goodness over there. I also bring greetings to you specifically from my wife and three children, and we've got a picture up over there. Hopefully some of you can see it, and... Um, that's my wife over there, and she um, will be celebrating 16 years of marriage two weeks from now. And uh, so two weeks from now, 16 years ago, Pete and Ash married us. They made a five-hour drive from a church in Harare down to Bulawayo where we were planting um, our first church, and Pete and Ash were helping with that. And uh, a few years later, along came these three kids, Ethan, Noah, and Bethel. Uh, Bethel hiding over there, she's our, she's our youngest, she's eight years old, and our only daughter, and um, I don't know if there are any fathers out there with daughters, but um, there's something unique about having 
daughters. I'm, I start to look at uh, women in a different way. I start to look at men in a different way also. And I <laughs> anticipate one day um, someone coming and saying, you know, I, I, or my daughter saying, can we go out on a date? Uh, I, I have a new interest. It changes what I read. I have a new interest in um, bits like this that I found. A father who was preparing for his daughter's teen years. And he famously came up with five simple rules for dating his daughter. And uh, I'm going to share some of those with you because they're important to me, and I know that some of you may appreciate it. This is a man's five rules for dating his daughter who, um, in the words of Zechariah, we didn't read this first, but Zechariah 2.8 talks about um, the new Jerusalem being the apple of God's eye. And uh, I can imagine this father that talking about the apple of his, high, of his eye, five rules for dating her. Rule number one, I have no doubt that you are a popular fellow with many opportunities to date other girls. This is fine with me, as long as it is okay with my daughter. Otherwise, once you have gone out with my little girl, you will continue to date no one but her until she is finished with you. If you make her cry, I will make you cry. Rule number two, I'm sure you've been told in today's world, sex without utilizing a barrier method of some kind can kill you. Let me elaborate. When it comes to sex, I am the barrier and I will kill you. <laughs> rule number three, the following places, rule number three, the following places are not appropriate for a, for a date with my daughter. Places where there are beds, sofas, or anything softer than a wooden stool. Places where there are no parents, police, or nuns within eyesight. Places where there is darkness. Places where there is dancing, holding hands, or happiness. Places where the ambient temperature is warm enough to induce my daughter to wear shorts, crop tops, vests, spaghetti tops, or anything other than dungarees, a sweater, and a goose-down jacket zipped up to her throat. <laughs> Movies with a strong romantic or sexual theme are to be avoided. Movies which feature chainsaws are okay. Soccer games are okay. Old people's homes are better. Number four, rule number four. Do not lie to me. I may appear to be a pot-bellied, balding, middle-aged, dim-witted has-been, but on issues relating to my daughter, I am the all-knowing, merciless God of your universe. <laughs> if I ask where you are going and with whom, you have one chance to tell me the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I have a shotgun, I have a shovel, and five acres of empty space behind the house. <laughs> Do not trifle with me. Lastly, number five, be afraid. Be very afraid. It takes very little for me to mistake the sound of your car in the driveway for a bomber coming in low. The voices in my head frequently tell me to clean the guns as I wait for you to bring my daughter home. As soon as you pull into the driveway, you should exit the car with both hands in plain sight. Speak the perimeter password, announce in a clear voice that you brought my daughter home safely and early, then return to your car. There is no need to come inside. The camouflaged face at the window is mine. <laughs> I anticipate some young suitor coming someday, and these are the kinds of things that go through my mind. I anticipate, perhaps, God willing, one day me walking her down the aisle and handing her over to some young man. And when that happens, 
I think that the one thing I would want going through the groom's mind on that day would be Paul's encouragement to, his church, to, to the church in Ephesus, where he says in Ephesians 5, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives like that. This morning, we want to see how Christ loves the church. And as we do that, we want to learn about how we, Christ followers, Christ imitators, should love the church. Both have parallels with the marriage relationship. Christ loved the church. And wherever you are on your spiritual journey, I'm praying that you would see how Christ loves you. At many a wedding I've taken with the bride and groom sitting close by, I've counseled newlyweds on the concept that love is not a static concept, it's actually a dynamic concept. Love evolves and matures with time. And as we talk about loving the church this morning, I want to do that in the context of what I've described to newlyweds as the three stages of love. Because when you talk to newlyweds, they will say, you say, do you love her? They'll say, yes. You'll say, um, um, are you in love? They say, yes, we are in love. But love isn't a static com concept. It's a dynamic concept. And someone has described the three stages of love the three, um, um, uh, as, as love matures, you go through these three dynamics. The first stage is this. Stage one of love is you love them, but you don't know them. Stage number two of love is you know them, and you don't love them. <laughs> Stage three, the most mature kind of love, if you like, is you know them and you love them. And that's actually a picture of, of how God loves us. It's in, in some ways, it's only God who can truly love you and I like that. I think it's Tim Keller who said that to be, to be loved and not known is superficial, isn't it? It's easy for you to love me. If I come up from here, talk on stage for 30 minutes, tell a few jokes, smile, You'll think I'm a nice guy, you'll love me, but that's a superficial kind of love. And Tim Keller carries on and he says, to be loved and not known is superficial. To be known and not loved, well, that's our greatest fear, isn't it? If we really let people know us, then they won't love us. But to be known and loved, to be known to the deepest parts of our being, warts and all, and truly loved with an unconditional love. Well, that's, that's heaven on earth. That's what God does for us. That's what God does for you. And so there are these three stages of love as it matures. And they're going to form the outline of today's message as we embrace this charge of Scripture this morning to love the church. And uh, we read from Zechariah chapter 2, but just to provide a bit of context, because this, this um, passage talks about men with lines and with measuring lines and dreams and so on. Uh, th this, this passage of scripture was 
written in a specific context. What happened is the people of God were in Babylon. They were in exile. But the prophet Jeremiah had said that the exile, this, this, this removal from the, the land of Israel, it'll only last 70 years. And so after 70 years, God orchestrated things so that his people, the, the nation of Israel, the people of God, could travel back to Jerusalem and be a part of the new thing God was doing in restoring the temple and restoring the people of God and restoring Jerusalem. And uh, this company came back with a lot of excitement, carrying prophetic dreams. But then they, met, they hit some hard times in the reality of rebuilding the new Jerusalem. And our passage this morning was written to encourage this group, as they went on this journey of, of loving the idea of a new Jerusalem, but, but, but not really knowing it, and then knowing what this involved a bit more, but then not really loving it, perhaps. And all the while, Scripture encouraging, the voice of God encouraging us to truly know and to truly love. So let's journey this morning with the returned exiles. And the first stage of our message this morning is the first stage of love, love of a person, love in a marriage, love for a church, and that's you love them, but you don't actually know them. In our marriage illustration, that's the couple on their wedding day. You love them, and that's a good thing, but you probably don't really know them. You might have dated them and you might have had long chats in the car and so on, but unless you've been living with them, you don't know what they look like without the makeup on and with morning breath. <laughs> you marry them and you think they're just so kind and patient until your six-month-old has been teething forever and you see a new side of them. You see, until you've, actually, until you've actually married someone and, and gone through life stages with them, you can love them, but you don't actually really know them. And Tim Keller makes this great observation. He says, and even if you did really know them on their wedding day, marriage being the profound thing that it is changes a person. And so even if you did know them when you married them, you end up living with a stranger as that person changes. It's part of the reality of, 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 of relationship and love. And these are major issues in the city of Nairobi where we've um, been living for the last few years, sexuality and marriage. So we did a series um, based on the Song of Songs a few months ago. And um, I remember one of the things that uh, uh, came up in the research was, 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 was a preacher who said that... Um, you know, there's a lot of talk nowadays in relationships and marriage and so on of what is your type? You know, your type of person, what's your type of, 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 of man if you're a woman? What's your type of woman if you're a man? And uh, uh, some of the best advice that came out of this series of messages was um, husbands especially. In terms of the type of woman you're into, body type, for example, your type is the person you're married to. They should become for you the definition of beauty. 
And so, if you married a big-boned woman, well, then you're into big-boned women. If you married someone who's skinny, well, skinny husband is your type. And someone said, yeah, but I married skinny, and now she's big-boned. Well, then, husband, your type changed, okay? Your type was skinny, now your type is big bone because your definition of beauty is the woman who God has put in front of you. We're talking about when you love them, but you don't know them. And in the Zechariah context, our, our exiles who we're following their journey, where they are at is, is they're on their way back from Babylon. And you can imagine the excitement as they leave captivity back to the promised land, the holy land. Psalm 126, it's one of the scriptures up on the screen. It says this, When the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, we were like men who dreamed. Wasn't it wonderful to have a dream shared in worship this morning? Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. And as I walk amongst you this morning, I get the sense that these these months of planting Monument Church are full of dreams and laughter and songs of joy, and that is so good, that is so appropriate. And if you'd said to these exiles coming back, to the new Jerusalem. Do you love Zion? They'd have answered with a resounding, yes, we love Zion. They loved Zion, but they didn't yet know quite what was involved. I hope if you're here this morning, you carry a vision in your heart, a dream in your heart for this new church plant and for this whole idea of church. And I know you've been talking a bit about imitating the the Acts 2 church over recent weeks. And uh, in Acts 2, I've chose the message translation just because the language is so fresh. This is a great picture of what church could be and should be. The Bible says that that day about 3,000 took Peter at his word. They were baptized and signed up. Next slide. They committed themselves to the teaching of the apostles the life together, picnics and baby dedications, the common meal and the prayers. Everyone around was in awe. All those wonders and signs done through the apostles. And all the believers lived in a wonderful harmony, holding everything in common. They sold whatever they owned, they gave via, via online and church apps and in the offering basket. So that each person's need was met. They followed a daily discipline of worship in the temple, followed by meals at home. Every meal a celebration, exuberant and joyful as they praised God. People in general liked what they saw. Every day their numbers grew as God added those who were being saved. This is just the first stage of, of this romance with the church, of, of loving the church. And in this first stage, there is an excitement, there's an enthusiasm, there are dreams we carry in our hearts. And what do you do in this first stage? Three quick R's for you. There's some R's in this message. The first thing is we raise our hands for this vision. 
We say, hey, I want to be a part of that. It's like the man who, who, who sees the woman he wants and he, he puts his hand up and he says, I want to be with you for the rest of my life. And I wonder if you've yet signed up to say, hey, I, I want to love what Jesus loves. And I want to be a part of what God is doing in, in this local church. When you see the church and you, you fall in love with her, that's a good time to raise your hand up and say, I want to be a part of this mission. The second, the second R, if you like, is to, is to refuse, refuse to settle for a life of isolation. And one of the applications in marriage, I remember Pete and Ash saying this as they did pre-engagement counseling with us. One of the things they said is, um, when you get married, you've got to make a decision actually before getting married, that divorce is not an option. And the best time to do that is actually when you're in love and there are no problems and everything's hunky-dory. That's the time to say, should hard times come or when hard times come, divorce, we've got to settle now, it's not an option. Because if it's always on the table, and as a Christ follower, in a similar way, we've got to make a decision that, you know what, I'm committed to a life of community and relationships and being a part of God's body. I refuse to, to settle again for a life of isolation. And the third thing, and I felt this is important, so we've got to raise our hands, we've got to refuse to settle for anything less, but the third thing is, briefly, we need to remember something. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Jesus says this to some believers in a church. He says, I hold this against you. You've forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning and you might have forgotten your first love. If that's you, Jesus is calling us back this morning. And he's saying, hey, you, you remember that first young, crazy, emotional love? Remember the things he did at first and return to them. So it's this first exciting stage of uh, uh, loving the church. Is, is you, you, you love the church, but you don't really know the church. You love Zion, but you don't really know Zion. But then there's a second stage. There's a second stage where you know them, but you don't love them. And in our Zechariah context, what happened is the captives got back to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there was a temple to build, and there was opposition and challenge. And they got hit by the realities of rebuilding in Zion. They got the Acts 2 vision for the church, if you like. But here's the deal, team. If you only have an Acts 2 vision for the church, your vision for the church may be deficient. Because the book of Acts isn't Acts 1, Acts 2, and then stop. It goes on to Acts 2, and then there's chapters like Acts 5, 6, and 7. You know what happens in Acts chapter 5? Church discipline happens, and that involves a man and wife dropping dead at Peter's feet. Acts chapter 6, the Greek-speaking Jews begin to complain against the Hebraic-speaking Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of the food. Acts chapter 7, 
We have Stephen becoming the first person to give up his life for being a follower of Jesus. There was hectic stuff that went on in the church in the book of Acts. And sometimes we can come to Christ and come to church and, oh man, we, we love it, but we don't know it. But after, after a while of planting Monument Church or being a Christ follower, we, we, now we know what it's like. And man, it becomes really difficult to love this thing. In these chapters in the book of Acts, we, we see heresy, hypocrisy, deception, division, disputes, not just disputes, but sharp disputes. Imprisonments, floggings. I don't know anyone who summarized it better than the Apostle Paul, who may be 20 years into his loving the church. He stated, 1 Corinthians 4 verse 13, up to this moment, you know what it's been like? You know what it's been like? I'll tell you what it's been like. Up to this moment, we've become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Monument is a great name for a church. I don't know how you came up with it, as you came up with it. I wonder if you considered for a moment... Naming yourselves scum of the earth, local church. <laughs> Refuse of the world, international ministries. But Paul says, you, 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 want, you want to know what this is like sometimes? It's, it's, not, always, it's not always easy in John Stott's words. It was, wasn't all romance and righteousness in the early church. But in his excellent book on Christian community, it's called Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer explains to us the importance of this step in the process, the importance of journeying through not just loving the church, but not, not knowing her, but coming to a place of knowing the church and not loving her, this is what he says. It's a bit of a long quote, but it's, it's so helpful. I want you to track with me and it's up on the screen so that you can follow. You might call this the importance of embracing the gift of disillusionment. Bonhoeffer says this. Innumerable times, a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian set down for the first time in a Christian community is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and try to realize it. But God's grace, speed, God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as, surely, just as surely God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great general disillusionment with others with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace, Bonhoeffer says, listen to this, and this, this I think should be, this, this quote, maybe this book should be required reading for church plants. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period in a dream world. He doesn't abandon us to those rapturous experiences and lofty moods that come over us like a dream. God is not a God of the emotions, but the God of truth. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight, begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it the sooner this shock of disillusionment comes to an individual and to a community, the better for both. 
a community which cannot bear and cannot survive such a crisis, which insists upon keeping its illusion when it should be shattered, permanently loses in that moment the promise of Christian community. Sooner or later, it will collapse. Every human wish dream that is injected into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. It's not in my notes, but bear my soul for just a moment. Thinking back to uh, not 16 years ago, but maybe 18 or 19 years ago, and going through these uh, marriage preparation sessions with Pete and Ash, and sitting in their lounge in their house in Harare, the capital of Zimbabwe, southern, southern Africa, and um, there comes a time in the pre premarital counseling where you have a talk about sex. So we sat down with Pete and Ash, and they said to us, I can still remember, hey guys, um, this is what it's really like. And I remember doing a double take. <laughs> because until a mature godly couple shares their lives with you, all you can know and, and have experienced or can expect would be what you hear in the locker room or what comes through from Hollywood. And they said, hey, the Hollywood stuff, you've got to forget a lot of that. This is what it's really like. And it's in that moment where there was a need to give up dreamy conceptions and embrace reality because that's what God's plan for us actually is. And in a similar way, sometimes as Christians, we can love our idea of what a church should be more than the church in front of us. Now that's death to a marriage. If you walk into a marriage and you love your idea of what marriage should be more than the marriage that you're actually in, that's not a good place to be. And so on this journey of loving the church, I love the emotions of early young marriage. Those aren't a bad thing. Actually, they're a good thing because they, they help us to raise up our hand to refuse to settle for anything less and they give us something to remember when times are tough but there's also such a need just like in every marriage to say whatever I thought marriage was like you and I are in this together and you are the person I'm going to love because you are the person God has in front of me right now as my husband or as my wife and there's something that powerful that happens in a Christian community when we say my dreams of what church could be aside I commit to loving this church just like Christ loves it. Our last stage. We've been through you, love them, and you don't know them, and we've been through you, know them, and you don't love them, and now we come to this last and mature stage of love where you love them and you know them. And uh, in our remaining time together, I'm just going to read us through some of these verses and pick out a few things. Zechariah chapter 2. 
Zechariah 2 verse 1 says, Then I looked up, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? And he said, hey, we, we got to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and long it is. The measuring line symbolizes the building of something new. And the man in the vision, he wants to measure the city to see how wide and long it is. That, that seems like a good thing. But the angel who was speaking to Zechariah left and another angel came to meet him and said, run, tell that young man. See, in reference to a young man, it speaks of, uh, he's still got a thing or two to learn, this young guy. So let's, 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 uh, let's uh, we've we got to tell him a couple of things. Tell him that Jerusalem will be a city without walls. The young man can be commended for his zeal, but it's not good to have zeal without knowledge. The young man's love for Zion is somehow immature. Maybe he loves that he doesn't know, or he knows that he doesn't love. But the angel says, tell him he's wasting his time because Jerusalem will be a city without walls. What does that mean? Well, it means that God says, hey, what, what, what I'm going to do in the new Jerusalem, which in many, many ways speaks of what God wants to do in the church, he says, what I want to do in the church is so big that you actually can't measure it. What I want to do in and through monument is so big, but you actually can't measure it. And so they say to this young man, put your measuring lines away. And I want to tell you, as, as, a, as a young church planter, that was an important lesson to learn. And I mean, even to this day, I have apps on my phone like church metrics. And I, I want to know, are, 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 we, are we growing? How do you measure success in a church? And Spurgeon said this, and uh, I, I just found this so helpful. He said of this passage, you know, I fear that it is hard for us to number the people, to measure the people, to number the people at any time without committing a sin. Either the greatness of their number may lift us up and inflate us with pride, or the littleness of their number may make us despond and doubt the strength of God. It's Spurgeon. You ever done that? I, I, love, I love seeing a room full like this. But when I remember the magnitude of what God is doing, that actually humbles us and says, you know, this is just a tiny, tiny part of what God is doing in his global church. And if you ever get to your life group or to your prayer meeting or to a Sunday meeting and it's smaller than you think, well, remembering what God is doing in his big church stops us from becoming discouraged because, man, this may be small right here, right now, today in this place, but it's still a part of that global thing that God is doing that angels stop and stare at. It's a city without walls because what God is doing is so big. It's a city without walls, secondly, because God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. You might think that a city without walls will be vulnerable to evil. God says, no. I'm going to be, I love, I love the undelegated actions of God. Things in scripture where God doesn't say, uh, as, uh, you know, I'll get, I'll get my people on it and we'll make sure this happens. He says, with this new Jerusalem, I myself will be a wall of fire around it. This brings to mind the hedge of protection from Job chapter 1, which no satanic scheme could penetrate. Verse 8 talks about us being the apple of God's eye. 
The apple of the eye is actually the pupil of the eye, that part of us which reflexes are designed to protect. Every divine reflex is to protect, preserve, and prosper Jesus' church. And in all things, he's working for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. The new Jerusalem, the church of the living God, is the apple of heaven's eye. So discouraged saints, disillusioned saints, love the church because she's the apple of Jesus' eye. No matter what you're going through, remember that God has not forsaken you. God has not forsaken us. The story is told of how Martin Luther, the German reformer, went through a period of great despair. One morning, his wife appeared at the breakfast table wearing a black armband. Luther inquired, well, well, who has died? And his wife replied, well, with the way you've been carrying on around here, I thought God had died. (laughs) Friends, God's not dead. He himself was a wall of fire around his church. And last thing this morning, as the band comes up to help us, but by no means least, Let us consider the glory of the new Jerusalem. God says to the new Jerusalem, and I will be its glory within. The new Jerusalem, the church, will be a great number, as great as the stars in the sky and the grains of the sand on the beach. Is that her glory? The answer is no. She will be surrounded by a wall of fire, triumphant through the ages, and even the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Is that her glory? The answer is no. Friends, the glory of the new Jerusalem is the presence of the living God in our midst. Verse 10 says this. Zechariah 2.10 says, Shout, And be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Friends, this is what it's all about. Let's have one more word from Spurgeon before the morning is out. He says this, the glory of a church does not lie in the architecture of the place where she meets, nor in the eloquence of her minister, nor in the greatness of of her number, nor the abundance of her wealth, nor the profundity of her learning. It lies in her God. Christian loved the church because the Lord lives amongst her. He lives amongst us, and his glory is within. So we stand together. Let's just let this truth soak into us. The glory of God is amongst us. He is for us. He's a wall of fire. Not just that, He is our glory in our midst. I'm going to pray for us. Then uh, the band's going to lead us just in a worship song of response to this. God, we want to thank you at an individual level, that even though you know us to the depths of our being, warts and all, you've seen us in our our worst moments, still you love us to the skies. God, we want to thank you for your love this morning. And God, we want to thank you for your commitment to us on good days and bad. But God, more than that right now,
we want to thank you for your your truths revealed in your word that you are doing something that is so big can't be measured with a measuring line you're doing something right here right now this morning that will echo through eternity God we want to thank you that you're a wall of fire around these children dedicated this morning around these families up on the stage around each one of us followers of you you're a wall of fire around monument church you're a wall of fire gates of hell won't prevail satanic schemes will not prosper God, we want to thank you that you are, you are our prize, you are the glory within us. Yes. Thank you that you've chosen to make us your dwelling place. Oh God, fill our hearts with these truths. Set them on fire. May our weeks be different because of what we've seen of you and of your church. Yes. May lives be transformed this morning, God. Oh, come Lord, show us your glory yes. in our midst. Yes. 